there's basically two major divisions to the Gospel of John. We've got chapters 1 through 11, um, and they cover really a period of about three and a half years. They cover pretty much all of Jesus' ministry. Um, we then have the, the next section, which is chapters 11 through 21, that cover just one week. Uh, and it's a very detailed account of the things that took place during Jesus' final week, uh, leading up to the crucifixion and obviously the resurrection. Chapter 12 itself, uh, we see the triumphal entry uh, as Jesus, fulfilling the prophecy from Daniel 9, also Zechariah 12, rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. And then chapters 13 through 17, uh, we have this, what is referred to as the upper room discourse. It's uh, the longest recorded discourse or conversation or teaching, as it were, in the New Testament. It begins in the upper room uh, and it ends en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. Chapter 13 itself, we see Judas Judas actually leave the room. And I think that's quite significant. Obviously, he has to leave because he's going on to um, see the the chief priest and arrange this, this betrayal and everything else. But... I think part of that is that Judas has to be out of the room because what Jesus is, uh, Jesus is then going to deal with with the disciples is really a kind of a training course for his disciples. And Judas can't be part of that. What Jesus is saying is for his own. If you like, it's a, a masterclass in discipleship. And if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, these are the terms that he's laying down. Now, um, the first lesson that really comes out through chapters 13 and 14 is the giving up of the right to yourself. That's a phrase that Oswald Chambers often uses, giving up the right to yourself. Um, Jesus lays it down very much as a prerequisite uh, of being a disciple of his. Servanthood is also a prerequisite. Uh, before we can really get going on our road as disciples, um, we need to learn, as it were, to wash each other's feet. And that's not talking about when people come in, make sure you take the shoes off and cleanse them. It's not a, the actual act of it. It's, it's speaking of servanthood, of being prepared to take that lowest place. Jesus became, as it was, a servant. servant. Uh, that whole situation is very interesting because Jesus takes off the garments he's wearing. Uh, and it kind of, we, we see a picture that Jesus left the glory and the majesty of heaven to come and serve. And he, that whole situation with the washing of the feet is really the whole of the gospel summarized uh, in that one incident. It's very interesting to study that. But then Jesus goes on and gives, after these kind of prerequisites, um, a new commandment, which is to love as he has loved. This unconditional agape love, a love that's without limits. And then Jesus goes on to say that we should keep his commandments. Um, And the only real commandment that's given, actually, in this um, portion of scripture is that we should love each other. It should be one of the major characteristics of Christ's church, that there's love amongst each other. We also are told that the Holy Spirit will be given. Jesus was returning to heaven and he said, but he's not going to leave us without a comforter. The Holy Spirit would come and one of his primary roles is to teach. Uh, It's interesting, we have a lot of churches these days that have all sorts of strange notions as to what the Holy Spirit is for. Um, Some have this idea that the Holy Spirit has come to to make us laugh a lot or bark like dogs or etc. That's not what the Holy Spirit is given for. The Holy Spirit, there's various reasons, but one of them is to convict the world of sin. Another is that he's come to teach. And, you know, any church that is full of the Holy Spirit, you should find teaching and people that have been brought under the conviction of sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Um, some time ago we had 
some people that left the church back in Deal um, on the basis that oh you know it wasn't a, you know very they didn't feel it was very spirit led it wasn't very spiritual but what they were meaning was that there wasn't sorts of manifestations and all sorts of signs. And that is what they understood to be when the Holy Spirit is working, that's what you should see. Well, that's not what the Bible tells us. As we go into chapter 15 now, um, the, the next lessons we find is that the disciples are appointed to bear fruit. And that's a really important thing to state right at the start of this, as you'll see as we go through. Um, they are to continually abide in Christ. Um, but we warn that persecution will come. As we abide in Christ, as we bear fruit, persecution will come. It kind of pulls the, the rug out from the modern gospel, which tells us that, you know, become a Christian because, you know, it, God will make your life better. Well, that's not actually what being a Christian is all about. It's not so we have a good life here. You know, if you become a Christian, we're told that we can expect tri- persecution, tribulation, trials, all those kind of things that they're going to surround our lives. We're not becoming Christians to have a better life, but as uh, Ray Comfort puts it, to escape the jump to come. It's because there is a, a day when, when God will judge everybody by the man he's appointed being Jesus. And we're all going to have to stand there and answer to Jesus one way or another. We'll either stand before Jesus with him as our Lord and Saviour or as our judge. And, you know, this whole idea that, that um, you know, Jesus is going to come and make our life better than that, it's not a biblical concept. Jesus is coming to, to give us eternal life. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy in the run-up to, to that, that point as we get to uh, the new heavens, new earth, and all that that will come. But again, this persecution is coming, but Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit will be given to comfort us. So there's two specific reasons that come out of this, this block of scripture, this upper room discourse. One is that the Holy Spirit is going to be given to teach, but also that he's going to be given to comfort us. So uh, that's kind of where we are. So as we move into John chapter 15, we start and it says, first verse, I am the true vine, Jesus speaking, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. It's very easy just to read that and think, yep, okay, we're seeing a kind of an analogy here, um, kind of a, a gardening, um, botany-type uh, example. Jesus is, is referring to himself as a vine and the father as the husbandman. And it goes on to talk about things that we're probably familiar with. We've read this portion before. And we need to just do a little bit of digging here because what does it mean, the true vine? Well, by saying true, Jesus is saying he's the genuine vine. Now, that is opposed to counterfeit. There's two other vines that are actually mentioned in Scripture. Both profess to lead men to the Father. Psalm 80, verses 8 to 5, we'll look at it in just a second. Uh, and also Revelation 14, verse 9, really highlight these two other vines. Um, in Psalm 80, we find the first of these vines, and it says, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and did cause it to take deep root. And it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like goodly cedars. Uh, she sent out her boughs unto the sea, and her branches unto the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by, um, well, sorry, pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood does waste her, and the wild beasts of the field devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand has planted and the branch uh, that thou madest uh, strong for thyself. So we find that the first vine, clearly from the context, is referring to the nation of Israel. They were the ones that were brought out of Egypt and they were planted in their land and they were supposed to be fruitful. 
When we get to Isaiah 5, uh, this theme is picked up again. Uh, Isaiah says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved... And this is obviously speaking, uh, God, God speaking, as recorded by Isaiah. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved is a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it. And also made a winepress therein and he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now, go, go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, behold oppression, for righteousness, but behold a cry. Jeremiah makes this comment. He says, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy, a right seed. How art then turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? We find as we look at this, Israel were to be a witness. They were to be fruitful, uh, witnessing to the nations, testifying to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Through this vine, the nations were to come to know that that is the one true God. But Israel, through disobedience, became a degenerate plant, through seeking after other gods. And thus, as we're told in Scripture, they became a byword and a proverb. Rather than be a witness, they actually brought God's name into disrepute amongst the nations that surrounded them. However, the Jewish religious leaders still thought, certainly in the time of Jesus, that they were the only way to God. They had this this, um, almost arrogant attitude that they were the ones that had been chosen by God. Uh, They were this vine and, you know... And that was their approach. When you find Jesus or John the Baptist uh, confront them in Matthew 3, verses 9 through 10, it says, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones, uh, interesting study there as well on what those stones were, but to raise, uh, of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And then he says to them, talking to is the house of Israel, And now also is the axe laid uh, unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now, this is to be the, the situation for the children of Israel. They were unfaithful in the, the role that God had given them. So God is saying that if they're unfruitful and they persist in this, the axe is laid unto the root of the tree. And again, every tree which brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now that's really important that we understand the types, the ideas that are being used there because we're going to see it coming out again as we go through this chapter this evening. In Matthew 21, uh, it says here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and did a winepress in it and built a tower and led out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman, husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. 
But when the husbandmen saw uh, the son, they said unto themselves, uh, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize on his inheritance. Uh, they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard comes, what will he do unto these husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Okay, look what it says there. Just a, uh, this, this vineyard that has not produced, which obviously in the context is talking of Israel, and this is warning to Israel, uh, is saying that this vineyard is going to be given to other husbandmen. And notice it says, which shall render him the fruits. Jesus said unto them, Did you never read in the scripture the stone which the builders rejected is uh, the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Okay, again, it's reiterated that those that are beginning to give this mission uh, of drawing and, and be involved in bringing people to the one true God, which is really what this is all ultimately referring to, um, that nation who will be given this responsibility are going to bear fruit. Okay. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, uh, but on whosoever shall fall will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. Clearly they knew that this was in reference to the house of Israel and uh, the fact that they'd failed to bring forth the fruit. Okay, so that's the, the first of the, the, the other vines that are mentioned in Scripture. Uh, and obviously Jesus is comparing himself to this. But there's another vine, uh, the vine of deception. Now, we read in Revelation 14, picking up verse 8, it says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Um, now, this is very interesting. What we find here is that Babylon is used. It says Babylon is fallen, is fallen, implying this is going to be something that's sudden and very quick when it actually takes place. And obviously we find Revelation 17 and 18, pick this idea up. But notice we have the female uh, gender associated with Babylon. Now, as I say, Revelation 17 and 18 really expound the whole of that idea. Um, but who is this, this female entity referred to as Babylon. Well, just as a, an aside here, in Matthew twenty three thirty seven, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets. And Jesus isn't talking about the city. He's talking about the inhabitants thereof, the people of Jerusalem, people of Israel. Um, so the city is used to, to refer to the whole. And it's just the same here with Babylon. Babylon here is used as this title of this uh, if we say for now, a female entity. Um, so as I say, Matthew 23, Jerusalem is representing the house of Israel, so Babylon is representative of the apostate religious system. Now, the reason for that is it began there, all false religion on planet Earth, you can trace the origins back to Babylon, in the plain of Shinar in what is now modern-day Iraq, not far from uh, Baghdad, about 70 miles south of. It began there, and the Bible records that false religion will also end there as well. Uh, just a few verses further on in Revelation 14, we read, Another angel came out of the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Okay, again, we have the vine of the earth specifically mentioned, and this female um, title, as it were, applied to her. Now, 
This Babylonian vine, as I said, is really the epitome of all false religion. It began with Cush. Now, you know, we have Noah. Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham has a son called Cush. Um, and it appears that Cush was the founder of the Tower of Babel. Uh, a lot of people try and attribute that to Nimrod. Uh, we'll talk about Nimrod in just a second. Nimrod was Cush's son. Um, but Cush himself seems to be the one that was responsible. The Egyptian name uh, for Cush was Hermes. It just literally means a son of Ham. But they also had a title for him being the Confounder. And the reason for that is because he was responsible for this Tower of Babel that brought about the confounding of the languages. It's also interesting, you've probably heard the, the word hermeneutics, uh, it's the, the science of interpretation. Hermeneutics comes from Ham or Hermes, the same idea. And again, there's lots of different historical references uh, that seem to link Cush as the, direct, the one directly responsible for this attempt to, to build the Tower of Babel. Incredibly, that's just one generation after those that were on the ark. But that's what we find in the book of Judges as well. Just one generation after those that entered the land, we end up into uh, apostasy and rebellion against God. Now, after the Tower of Babel, um, we find that Nimrod goes out, he starts to build cities, uh, and he becomes, if you like, the first world dictator, and in that sense becomes a type or a forerunner of Antichrist. His name uh, being son of Cush, um, Bar being son of uh, Bar Cush, uh, becomes what was referred to by the Romans, the, the, the Roman god Bacchus. You find that all these, these gods, these pagan uh, deities, they all have their roots going back. Uh, Japheth is where we get Jupiter from. And obviously the, the Greeks, Romans also worship Jupiter. But it came from Japheth. These people, these men of old, became renowned. And, and obviously as uh, legend and uh, history went on, these ideas got twisted. Uh, and they became kind of deified. But... Nimrod then effectively establishes this false uh, religion that really had been founded by Cush. It was, it was kind of finding a way. The Tower of Babel was all about getting to God by your efforts, trying to build this tower as high as we can. Let's see if we can get to God by our efforts. And Nimrod effectively just picks that up and carries that on. And we then find it propagated by Semiramis, the wife of Nimrod. Um, very interesting situation. Nimrod apparently dies in the hunt. He's, he's out one day. At the time, Semiramis, his wife, is pregnant. Now, what does she do? She could lose the kingdom if she's not careful here. So she comes up with this idea that, well, actually, Nimrod is being reincarnated as this baby she's about to bear. So she does. The baby's called Tammuz, uh, mentioned various times in the Old Testament. And then we have, from that point, the beginning of the worship of mother and child. It's nothing to do originally with the Roman Catholic Church. It was a, a concept that began in Babylon. It was adopted not just by the Catholic Church, but by uh, Chinese and uh, Tibetans and all sorts. There's documentation going way, way back, uh, showing that they had this idea of worship of mother and child. And you'll find that so many other ideas that have been embraced uh, as part of uh, even Christianity. I mean, the, 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 the idea of Christmas, this is all linked into these things um, that we find going way back to ancient Babylon. Uh, too much to go into this morning. But just to talk really about this vine of deception, as I say, it began in Babylon uh, and uh, it's uh, propagated through the, the centuries. And it really promises a way to spiritual security. All of the false religions that we find in the world today, they're all doing that. They're promising a way to spiritual security, but ultimately they're going to lead destruction and the cup of the wrath of God. So, it's interesting, actually, that idea we were studying recently back in Deal, uh, the book of Numbers, 
In Numbers chapter 5, we find that the, the penalty for a woman that's found guilty of adultery is to drink of this cup, uh, and this, this judgment would come upon her if she was guilty. And God has this same idiom that's used here um, for this spiritual religious system that's uh, false. So moving back now to John 15, there's a bit of a detour, but that hopefully gives us a better understanding. When Jesus says that he is the true vine, okay, so he's contrasting the vine of Israel and the vine of the earth, you see, neither of which could lead anyone to the Father. Okay, and obviously Jesus then says, I am the genuine vine. I am the one, the only one, that can lead you to the Father. Okay, so I am the true vine. That's good, that's five words and we've, we're doing all right. So let's uh, move on. And my father is the husbandman, okay, God is the one who is tending this vine, looking over this vine. We read, then read, every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, then it may bring forth more fruit. Now on the surface, that seems fine. We kind of understand the idea being used. But what does it mean for an unfruitful branch to be taken away? These are the kind of questions we really need to have a little think about. Is Jesus referring to believers or unbelievers? What does it mean, every branch in me? What does that actually mean? And what does it mean for fruitful branches to be purged, as it puts here? And what is the fruit that should be produced anyway? Well, in answer to that last question, uh, J. Vernon McGee, very respected Bible scholar, makes this comment. He says, I do not believe that the fruit mentioned here refers to soul winning, as so many people seem to think. I believe soul winning is a byproduct, but not the fruit itself. The fruit is is the fruit of the Spirit. And then quotes from Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. So that's the fruit that should be produced. This is the fruit in the life of the believer. Abiding in Christ will produce effectual prayer, perpetual fruit, and celestial joy. That's what J. Vernon McGee says in his commentary. This purging, it's a, it's a strange word, but it's a very carefully chosen one here uh, that John has. It, it come, the word in the Greek is katharia, which just means to cleanse. It's where we get our word um, katharized from. Uh, and it's literally to drain poison from the system. And that's exactly what our husbandman, who is the father, does with us. Okay, That's the process that we refer to as sanctification, as the, the poison that is part of this world system that's kind of seeping through our, our, our veins, as it were. Um, the Father wants to purge that out. He wants us to be transformed. He wants us to be set apart for him. And that will cause us to bear more fruit. We read in Hebrews 12, 10 and 11, For they verily, talking of our fathers, our earthly fathers, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he, talking of God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's the fruit that we're referring to. Unto them which are exercised thereby. That's the fruit that God wants to produce in our lives. Again, that word chastened. It's the same idea of discipline, of correction, um, purging again. So going back to John 15 verse 2, every branch in me that bears uh, fruit, uh, sorry, in, in me that bears not fruit, he takes away, and every branch in me um, that bears fruit, he purges it. So let's just look at that, that first bit. Whom is it referring to? Now we've got two options, as I mentioned a moment ago. It's either referring to believers, or obviously unbelievers. If it's believers, we've got some questions, difficult questions. How can they be taken away? Can they then be restored? And is it possible, just think about this, for a believer to bear no fruit? 
just cast your mind back to what we said at the start when we were looking at Israel and what was being told of Israel that it was, the vineyard would be taken from them and given to another who would do what? Bear fruit. So in this context, we've now been told that if, if this is in reference to a believer, how do we reconcile that? If it's in reference to unbelievers, we've got also problems that we've got to address. How can they be said to be in me? Jesus says, every branch in me. Well, can a believer be said to be in Christ? And why would they actually be expected to bear fruit in the first place? So we've got some difficult issues to try and unravel. uh, And we're just going to spend a a little bit of time just going through, having a quick look at this. Now, um, you have this this taken away. Uh, What is that referring to? Uh, Some scholars will tell you, and it may well be the case, that the Greek word there is aria, which just means to lift up. And is saying that what the husbandman's doing here is if you've got a branch that's not bearing fruit, to take away means to, to lift it up, place a rock underneath it or something like that, to allow it to, to get more light or whatever, so that it will then become fruitful. Okay, that may be the case. But then how do you get the, the, the other things that we find there? We'll, we'll go through. I'm going to come back to that when we get to verse 6, because verse 6 adds some more fuel to that fire, as it were. Verse 3, though, carries on for now. It says, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Back in chapter 13 of John, uh, it had been the water that had cleansed their feet. Uh, Ephesians, Paul will clarify. He tells us there, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. We find that this, this cleansing is through the word. It's exactly what Jesus says. Now you are clean through the word. Okay, Our cleansing as Christians will come through the word. If we're trying to find cleansing in another way, we won't find it. Because clearly throughout the New Testament, this idea is reiterated that our cleansing from the things of this world, this life, comes from the word of God. Verse 4 carries on. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. Now, that's kind of an obvious statement in a sense. If the branch is connected to the root, then it will bear fruit. If it's not connected, it can't bear fruit. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Well, that's very obvious. If if you're not connected to Jesus, you cannot bring forth fruit. um, Because it's only through him that we can be fruitful. Verse 6 then says... If a man abide not in me, and this is where we start to get back to that issue that was raised in verse 2, he's cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Again, these two options. Is this referring to believers or unbelievers? Now, the reason I'm going into this is because there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from whichever option we find this to be in a moment. Let's have a look at believers first. So are the unfruitful branches referring to believers? What's the, the, the case for that? Well, the arguments for the unfruitful branches being a carnal believer, in other words, a believer that's really kind of living with one foot in the world, enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season and so on. Um, the arguments before, well, Jesus is actually in this discourse talking just to his disciples. That is true, he is. And the takeaway, as we said in verse 2, can actually be referring to lifted up. So that may be the explanation of what that means. And this idea is supported elsewhere in Scripture. We find in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, to deliver Paul talking about this person, this chap that's called in uh, or found out to be living in an openly uh, adulterous relationship. And he says that they should deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
quite a, a harsh thing it sounds. We, we would almost be, be thinking, well, that's not the way we should behave as Christians. But you see, there's a really important underlying lesson here. Just as back in the book of Numbers, we find that the lepers were to be put out of the camp so that they did not in, uh, contaminate the body. So Jesus is saying that effectively, and this is what Paul is dealing with here, rather in Corinthians, um, that those that are in an openly unconfessed state of sin are to be removed so they don't contaminate those within the body. Okay, This individual was cut off from fellowship, but Paul was vindicated in this, what seems like a harsh, accent, uh, harsh action, because uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, 5-11, through 11, Paul, we actually find that the man had repented. Peter makes the, the comment in first Peter chapter one verse uh, sorry first Peter one uh, verses three through to seven I think um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of the de- of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible undefiled that fades not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now, this is interesting, though now, for a season, if need be. What does that mean? Though now, if for a se- though now, for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perished, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Is this referring to an unfruitful branch that needs to be put through some sort of trial? Well, clearly that example back in Corinthians, that person was told to go have at the world. If you want to play with the world, go have at it. And as Christians, if we try to do that, we'll find that that will never make us happy. We will just find ourselves getting more and more into emptiness, despair, and realising actually we're much better off with Christ, walking with Christ, because the world has nothing that it can offer us. But this is very interesting, because Peter's saying that if need be, some of us may go through heaviness, through manifold temptations, etc., that, through the trial uh, of our faith, it might be found unto the praise and honour and glory. Uh, Romans 11, another interesting passage in regard to this. It says, for if the casting away of them, referring to Israel, be for the reconciling of the world, what shall be the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. Look now, it says, if some of the branches were broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree... Okay, look first of all, it's saying the casting away. Very similar idea to that which being mentioned in John 15. Some of the branches are being broken off. Okay, It says, for us, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. And I will say then, the branches are broken off, that I may uh, be grafted in. Well, or well said, you know, that's right. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou stands by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. Okay, so because of unbelief, the branches that being Israel were broken off. Now that's exactly what we saw right at the start when Jesus was talking about this, or John was talking about this vine, uh, and Jesus in Matthew refers to it as well, um, that they were being broken off. But there's this possibility for Israel to be grafted back in. Okay? Because of unbelief they were broken off, uh, etc. And then verse 21 of Romans 11 says, For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fail severity, but toward uh, the goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. And then look what he says. Otherwise thou also shall be cut off. 
Very interesting. It seems to be very kind of consistent with the idea that's being put forward in John. So are we saying then that if you are unfruitful as a Christian, that you run this risk of being cut off? And they also, if they abide still not in unbelief, shall be grafted in. So this is wrong. If they don't stay in unbelief, they can be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, so if we as Gentiles have been grafted into this, this tree, how much more shall these, which be natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So, there's other biblical presidents that seem to have this same idea. The prodigal son being a case in point uh, in Luke 15. The father gave him over to the world. He wanted to go and play in the world. And, and the father says, okay, I'll, I'll let you go. And he gives him his inheritance. His flesh life and appetites were then destroyed. He had as much of the world as he could possibly have. He ran out of money and it kind of came to an end of all that kind of thing. He got, as if we could say, burnt by the world. This trial by fire, we could say. But he then repents and comes back to the father. Though he lost his inheritance, he squandered all that, he did not lose his sonship. There's another uh, example that we can see with the nation of Israel. In fact, throughout their history, we find the book of Judges deals with the idea that, that God uses the nations around them to judge them for their disobedience, to bring them back to him. The book of Kings uh, and Chronicles, we actually find the same thing. The Babylonian captivity, again, God uses the world to bring judgment, to bring his people to repentance. Um, Deuteronomy 28, talking of the diaspora, uh, again, really just deals with that whole issue that God allows the world to, to pinch and squeeze and put pressure on those he loves to make them realise really where they belong. So, the conclusion, God does use the world to bring correction. That's clearly, we can see that from scripture. There's examples of it we've just looked at. And that's, if you like, this trial by fire uh, for those that love. And as Peter says, if need be. Now that should, straight away for us this morning, one lesson we can take out of this is that there's a warning there that there's a, a kind of very unnecessary journey. We could almost liken it to a 38-year wandering when we could go directly into the promised land, just simply through disobedience. Uh, God doesn't want to deal with this in this way. But if we're disobedient, then clearly in Scripture there's a precedent for this actually being the case, and God will use the world to bring correction. So God will not permit a carnal Christian to continue in their carnality. Uh, Another example is Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5. Uh, There's an interesting allusion in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 uh, about many being weak, sick, and some sleep amongst you. Uh, another possible link uh, to this idea. Galatians 6 lays down a, a very fundamental spiritual law that if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. It's not a, you might get away with it, you will reap corruption. If we want to live for the things of the flesh, you will reap corruption. It's as sure as the law of gravity. In fact, I would say even more so because it's a spiritual law and therefore eternal. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says there, verse 17, that if you defile the temple of the Holy Spirit being our flesh, God will destroy him. What does that mean? Well, I think we're looking at the same type of idea. Not to destroy you as in terms of send you to hell, but to destroy that flesh life. Uh, And just to mention as well, some people try and linking here that bit in 1 Corinthians 3 that talks about when we get to the the, the Bemis seat, the judgment seat of Christ, that there's this burning up of the gold, uh, we have the gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay and straw, they go through the fire. But that's, I don't believe, anything to do with what we're talking about here. For a start, that's when we get to heaven, not on earth. And it's the burning up of the works, not of the the fruit as, as such. It's not actually the individual, so... 
But clearly from Galatians 6.1 and various other passages, God is able to restore believers that end up in that predicament. God will deal with them and bring them back to him. And I, in my own life, have seen examples of that. Okay, so the big question is, we've seen that is a possibility, but is that what is being addressed in John 15, six verses? Are the unfruitful branches believers? Well, Proverbs 18, verse 17 tells us that the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbour comes and examines him. Okay, so when you've got the first lot, you say, well, that seems so, so plausible, that's got to be right. But actually, all of a sudden, we're going to be presented with a new lot of evidence that actually may make us look at things differently. So the argument's now then for these unfruitful branches being a false convert, because that's our only other option. Well, believers, I would contest, however worldly they may be, still produce spiritual fruit. And that's something that you're going to see as we go through the rest of this chapter. But it's also effectively what Jesus said as we look back with what was told to the Jews, that the the vineyard would be given to another nation who would produce fruit. To suggest then that believers don't produce fruit would almost seem to be contradictory to that. You see, I also would argue that a believer could never be taken from the place of abiding in Christ. See, this whole idea of abiding in Christ is not about our ability, it's about his. The whole idea of us bearing fruit is not about our ability, but about his. Yes, there's an onus on us to yield to him and allow him to work through us. But the language here is always used elsewhere of unsaved individuals. Okay, the context also is important here because Jesus in his discourse, although he said that he's talking just his disciples, the context is that he's actually contrasting, and then we actually see four different examples of this, the way of the world and the way of his disciples. And I think that's what we're seeing with this, these unfruitful branches and the fruitful branches. In Matthew seven sixteen to 22, a very clear verse, Jesus says, you shall know them by their fruits. Well, that's a really good indicator as to where these branches are. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. You shall know them by their fruits. Every tree that brings forth not good fruit, look what we're told, is hewn down and cast into the fire. The same language that we find John uses. Wherefore, by their fruits... You should know them. When I say John uses recording John's gospel, but it's what Jesus says, both here and in John's gospel. Jesus says you'll know people by the fruit they produce. If somebody is not producing fruit, I think it's a bit erroneous to start calling them backsliders. Because if they are not producing fruit, Jesus says that will give you an indication as to where they are. That We'll know people by the fruit they produce. And again, we have this, uh, the same idea being used, that they'll be hewn down and cast into the fire. So if that is the the right understanding of this, what about that phrase that Jesus says, you know, every branch in me that bears not fruit? How can unbelievers be said to be in Christ? Well, one of of the examples uh, we could look at is in Matthew 7. It says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Okay, let's, these people, to all intents and purposes, would be seen to be in Christ. Okay, they do things in the name of Jesus. Jesus clearly says that he doesn't know those people. But in Matthew 13, again, we have another example. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea. Now the sea in scripture is used of the world, the Gentile world as such. 
and gathered of every kind. So we're gathering, this net out of the world is gathering of every kind, which when it was full, when they drew to shore and sat down, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. Well, we're not talking here about the world in general. We're talking about, if you like, the church, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Uh, interesting study on those phrases as well. But um, that's been all drawn in. But in this net, we've got good and we've got bad. So shall it be at the end of the world that angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire where there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So we have this severing, okay, again, and being cast into the fire. The same ideas. Another very interesting one is the wheat and tares in Matthew 13. Jesus says there, talking of the tares that have been planted amongst the wheat. In the field that this man had purchased, um, the ideas are very consistent. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather you together. First the tares, and bind them in bundles, and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, this same kind of idea seems to be coming through. It's interesting, the in John chapter 15, where it talks about men gathering them, in verse 6, the men, the word men has actually been inserted by the translators. It's simply saying that they will be gathered. Now, in this passage in Matthew 13, I believe we're told who the ones are that do the gathering, and that is the angels. It's not for men to do the gathering. The angels do the gathering of those that are not truly believers, but are yet in that net or in the field. They look like believers. Matthew 13, we have this parable of the four souls. I'm sure you're familiar with it. The first one doesn't even get started. Uh, the second two are unfruitful. But the fourth one bears fruit. Only one of the four soils actually brings forth any fruit. And look what we're told. But he that receives the seed into good ground is he that hears the word, very important, and understands it. Okay, The others hear the word, but only this one understands it. Which also brings forth fruit, and uh, which also bears, for, bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now, what's interesting there is that all bear fruit, but just differing quantities. Now, my contention is, if you are a believer, you will bring forth fruit because if you have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, you cannot help but bring forth fruit because you see that is not about you; that is about what God does through you. It's His work. But depending on how you are prepared to yield your life to him, whether you're prepared to give up the right to yourself to him, will depend upon the amount of fruit that God will produce through you. And clearly here, of the believers, of the good soil, of those that bring forth fruit, they all bring forth, but just differing quantities. So Jesus had warned Israel that because they were going to be unfruitful, the vineyard, as we saw, will be given to another nation who will bear fruit. And again, just that verse we looked at earlier. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God should be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And Israel themselves are to be cut off. Now the axe is laid and the root of the tree. Therefore every tree which brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. This then is a conclusion, I believe, from this, this passage. John 15, 1-6, Jesus effectively underlines... Uh, that which he already told the disciples, that he was the only way to the Father. He's the genuine vine. Israel were no longer a vine whose fruit would lead the nations to the Father. Neither could the vine of the earth bear any good spiritual fruit. The only vine of value was the true vine, being Jesus himself. And through his propitiation, his payment in full for the sins of the world, all mankind now has the opportunity of abiding in that vine. However, if any branch abide not in the vine... 
it would be spiritually fruitless and therefore take it away to wither and finally be burned. And I think really that is uh, an incredible picture of the person who rejects Christ that we have kind of given to us here. In Romans 6, Paul says there, What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Think back to the way, you was, the way it was for you as, a, as an unbeliever before you came to know Christ. You know, there wasn't any fruit. As an unbeliever, you don't produce fruit. But then he says, Now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Clearly believers have your fruit under holiness. You do produce fruit. So that is my take. Uh, one of my dearest friends, uh, who's a believer, sincere, genuine believer, he thinks that the unfruitful branches that it's referring to are believers. But for the reasons I've just shared with you, I don't think they are believers because I think all believers will produce fruit. And I think we're seeing a, uh, this, this parallel with what Jesus says elsewhere uh, about um, unbelievers who can seem to be in Christ quite clearly, but are actually not. And that word in, by the way, can also be translated on. Um, so uh, any, any branch on me doesn't necessarily mean attached to, abiding in, connected into. Um, so anyway, let's move on. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. What is, is that saying? Ask what you will. Can we just ask anything we want to? Well, only if we're abiding in Christ are we actually given that privilege. If you abide in me, there's an if there. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. I think the way of understanding that is partly that there's going to be this constant communication with the Father. If we are abiding in Christ, then this asking what you will, there's a constant communication going on. But also, yeah, it's the Father's will that we bear fruit. And there's, there's this idea, I think uh, Psalm uh, 37 uh, deals with the whole idea that uh, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I mentioned this before, I don't believe that saying, if you delight yourself into God, you'll get whatever you want. But God will put into you the right desires. So God will give you the desires that you have. And I think that really deals with this issue as well. That if you're abiding in Christ, you're only going to ask for those things that are in accord with his will and for his glory, because you won't want anything else. And it says, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. You see, this is to be a natural process of being a believer. And Jesus says, So shall you be my disciples. Now, the question is, if you're not bearing fruit, I challenge you with 2 Corinthians 13.5, where uh, Paul there talks to the Corinthians and says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Don't take a chance on this. This is such an important issue. If you are looking at your life and you see no fruit, then be honest and examine yourself and see whether you truly are in the faith. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. What an incredible love. The love that Jesus had, Jesus now says, is that same love with which I have loved you. Continue in that love. Continue in this relationship. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Now these things, I think we're seeing here that he's spoken, it's the principles that have been laid down up to this point in this discourse that Jesus has gone through from, uh, from John 13 right the way through, laying down these principles. These things that, that Jesus has spoken were so that we would have joy 
And that that would be a, 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 a perpetual joy, not changed or, or affected by our circumstances. Happiness is something that's very tangible, just comes and goes, you know. Um, but um, um, but the, a real, real joy is something that will um, permeate and pervade through whatever situation we find ourselves. Then Jesus, I think we have a kind of a, a reiteration now, kind of a summary. He says, this is my commandment. He's already said this, but this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. You know, the, the Ten Commandments were divided into to two sections. The first four deal with our attitude towards God. And that's what Jesus talks about uh, in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. He says, where he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your mind. And he says, This is the first and great commandment. And I think at this point, the disciples have got to that point. They've, they've left everything. They've followed Jesus. So the next part of the Ten Commandments, the uh, Commandments 5 through 10, deal with our relationship to those around us. And this is what's being really amplified here, that we love one another. And it's not something that we can do naturally. If we try and do it naturally, we won't do it. But Jesus will impart into us this, this agape love, this unconditional love, uh, that allows us to love regardless of, of the circumstances or whatever else. And Jesus says, you're my friends. You know, we're not servants. We're not, we haven't been hired to do a particular job. We've been classed as friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants. This is Jesus saying exactly that thing. For the servant knows not what his Lord does, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. Just going back to that issue we were discussing in length, uh, in uh, particularly verse 2, verse 6 there, Jesus is saying that he's chosen and appointed and ordained us that we should bring forth fruit. So then to say that if we're not bringing forth fruit, it really is implying that Jesus actually failed in what he said he's going to do in us. And that that fruit should remain, that whatever you should ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Again, that is reiterated here. Just as a a side comment here, it's Jesus that ordains. He chooses, and he's the one that ordains. You know, in most of the religious systems we have in the world today, it's a man that ordains another man, or in some cases a woman. But according to scripture, it's not man that should ordain. It's God that does the ordaining. These things I command you that you love one another. This is being so heavily emphasized. But then Jesus now changes from that so vital a, a theme to talk about the result of the, what will happen when fruit is produced in us. He says, verse 18, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, just quickly, is that a contradiction? Actually, back in John 7, 7, Jesus said the world cannot hate you. And yet here Jesus is saying, if the world hate you. Well, no, it's not a contradiction because Jesus makes the point back in uh, John 7 that the world, uh, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that the works are of evil. You know, if the world hates you, it's not because of you, it's because of Jesus. The world doesn't hate you. And the way you can prove that is quite simply, and I'm not encouraging this or suggesting it for a moment, but you can just try going along with the world. You know, if the world says, you know, why don't you come out with us and do this or do that? And you go, no, thanks. You know, going to church tomorrow and I say oh no he's if you say oh all right I'll come with you that hatred will go instantly see the world doesn't hate you but it hates what you're standing for what you're representing 
as a servant of Jesus. Verse 19, Jesus says, if you are of the world, oh, sorry, uh, verse 18, if the world hate you, know that it hated me before it hated you, as we said. If uh, you were of the world, the world would love his own. Just really again, just summarising what I just uh, put across. But because you are not of the world, so important for us to understand that. You know, we, we tend to assume this world is our home, but it's not. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's because we, when the Spirit is working in us, remember what I said earlier about one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, to bring conviction. And when you stand there as light and as salt, contrasting to the ways and the standards of the world, makes the world very uncomfortable. Jesus says, verse 20, Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. What does that mean? Well, I actually quite like um, Adam Clark's um, commentary uh, on this. and He says that this should really be interpreted as uh, if they watched my sayings, they will watch yours also. That's the idea of keeping here. Um, Not keeping my sayings as in being obedient to things I've said. But if they've watched the things I've said, they're going to watch the things you said. You remember they were watching Jesus, trying to get him to stumble, to say something that they could accuse him thereof. Well, the world does just that with us. You know, the world will critically observe what we say. We have to be so careful. We are always on duty as believers. We don't get time off where we can just shut down and think, well, I don't have to worry. No, every moment when we're anywhere, home, with our, our children around us. I, I mean, I'm amazed at the moment, Marla, the things she picks up, you know, they're just she's like a sponge. Um, and, and every little word or phrase and, you know, you realise how, how careful you can't go around talking about people at home because when you're with them, she'll say, oh, you know, she'll go and say something. And, you know, not saying we do that. It was an example because, you know. But we have to be so careful. If the world watched Jesus' sayings, they'll watch ours also. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not, uh, they had not sinned. Now specifically Jesus here in, in the, the immediate context is talking about the Jewish leaders, those that he'd come to, he'd spoken to. They had no excuse. He presented enough evidence that he was the Messiah and everything else. And he's saying, you know, if, if, I'd, come and, if I'd not come and spoken to them, uh, and that they would not have any sin. Um, in terms of they, they, you couldn't, they wouldn't be guilty of the fact they're rejecting me and everything else. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hates me... Hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works uh, which no other man did, they had not sinned. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. You see, Jesus did incredible works, but the purpose of those works was to bring them into the understanding that he was God in human flesh. No other person could have done those works. Nobody else would have dared claim the things that Jesus Christ claimed. But they rejected him. Jesus says, but this comes to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Jesus quoting there from Psalm 64 verse 9. But then he says, but when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. Well, this comforter, you know, given the the things that Jesus just briefly said, it's important now that Jesus says, look, it's going to be tough. There'll be persecution. They're going to watch your words. They're not going to like you. They're going to hate you because of me. But there's a comfort coming. How important. 
John 14 verse 6 actually refers to this comforter as another comforter of the same kind. Okay, There's various words in the Greek, but this is of the same type and substance, the same kind of Jesus. Uh, the Greek word is allos. We're told also this, this comforter is the spirit of truth, uh, and therefore he's never going to contradict the word. It's amazing the number of people today in the church that will have a word, you know, and the spirit has told them to say this or that or whatever else, and it seems to go flatly against what the Bible teaches. Well, you know, clearly that's not from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never contradict the word of God. And we're told the Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus. Well, how? How does the Holy Spirit testify of Jesus? Well, this is kind of all wrapping this up, because... The last verse of this chapter we find, verse 27, and you shall uh, bear witness, you shall also, so you also shall bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, that word and there in the Greek uh, is just uh, day. It just means moreover or because. It's linking these thoughts together. So the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness, it's going to testify of Jesus. And this, we're told effectively, is the way that will happen. And you shall bear witness because you've been chosen, okay, so because you've been with me from the beginning. So how will the Holy Spirit testify of Jesus? Ultimately, really, if you look through the Gospel of John, it's testifying that Jesus is God. It's by the fruit produced in the lives of believers. That's how this witness is to be delivered. And that concurs with what we find in John fourteen twelve. Jesus talked about the greater works you would do. It's not talking about greater miracles in terms of degree, quantity or variety or anything like that. It's talking about greater works. The works that Jesus did were for the express purpose of revealing his deity. And that's effectively what our mission is, to let the world know that Jesus is God. If Jesus is not God, then there is no saviour. One man, if Jesus was just a man, he could not die for the sins of the whole world. But only as God, veiled in human flesh, could he pray, pay the price necessary for the sins of the whole world? Okay, the practical application then of all this, the discipleship training course that Jesus put these disciples through, it comes to an end effectively at this point. And there's going to be a, kind of a, a little postscript as we get into chapter 16, which we'll look at in the next session. But it's time to put that into practice. The things that have been learned, put into practice. And the primary commandment, as we saw, was to love one another. So, so important. Again, you won't do it through your natural strength or just a, I'd like to try hard at this. No, you need to rely on the Spirit in you. That, that is uh, what will be produced in us if we abide in him. And as believers, we will produce fruit. We will produce fruit. Okay? The amount will depend upon how deep our roots go down into his word. Every time we look at these kind of things, it's all dependent upon the word of God and our relationship to it. But that fruit will trigger persecution, but as a result of that, it will testify to the deity of Christ. And that's really what we're about. Letting people see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That can never be said of a man. It can only be said of God. And that is what Jesus really brings to these disciples here. These are the, the, the practical things now that they are to go on and do, that as they abide in him, they will produce fruit, and that fruit will lead people to the Father.